Hey guys. So the other day I wrote an article about the competitive advantages of DeFi because I think a lot of people who invest in DeFi are actually not clear about how this industry is going to be sustainable in the long term. Because I heard a lot of people say, "Oh, regulations are coming to DeFi, and therefore it's going to、um, be the end of the industry." Or it's going to lose its edge because it will be just the same as the banks, and I think those are very misguided comments. So I wrote this article. Basically,、um, I was saying there are three long-term competitive advantages when it comes to DeFi that makes this industry as a financial intermediary is actually a hundred times better. Than traditional banks. So, what are the advantages? Number one, it has a very low operating cost by design because it's running on these public blockchain rails like Ethereum or Solana or Avalanche or Terra. So, it takes away a lot of the infrastructure cost of payment, of transactions, of you know backend databases and services and all that, and all of these costs that traditional banks have to pay for, it basically is being shared publicly by users of the blockchain, by you know the validators of the blockchain, in a you know proof of stake chain, obviously, and proof of work, you know, it just costs shared by miners, and they get compensated by. Selling their tokens, so it's actually quite similar. So,、uh, but in any case, as the creator of a DeFi app, you don't have to deal with any of that. This is essentially just like in Web two. You know, once AWS Amazon Web Service started, it actually started this wave of innovation in the so-called SaaS industry, software as a service industry. And I own a SaaS company, so. I can, you know, tell you this from personal experience.、Um, the advent of AWS is a godsend for the software industry. It spurred who knows how many innovations, and the same thing is happening in Web three and the same infrastructure, not the same infrastructure, but you know, it's it's a similar analogy. It's being provided by public blockchains like Ethereum, and so it's really very convenient and very low cost to set up a. Um, you know, automatic market makers or set up a lending or deposit services、um, running on those chains. So a large, a large chunk of that cost is being taken away. Okay, so that's advantage number one. Advantage number two, DeFi is global. So there is, so it's not, its market size is not being limited by geography, not like traditional banks. As a bank, it's usually regional, right? So, your market size is limited by your geography, and since the fixed cost of starting a financial service is really high, that means you know, as a small, if you if your market size is limited, you can only allow so many banks to exist. And not only that, if you have a small number of banks because your market size is limited, then the banks have to have a sizable margin. Between their deposit rate and their lending rate, in order to stay afloat, so none of that applies to DeFi because the market size is automatically global. There is no 
you know, restrictions of moving Ethereum or moving any DeFi tokens across geographical boundaries. So it naturally lends to a much higher capital efficiency. And thirdly, I think this is also a very overlooked competitive advantage of DeFi is its ownership model. It's very participatory, okay? So people who own the DeFi tokens are also users of the DeFi products and uh, be people who stake the tokens. So for example, if you stake Aave token, um, if you buy the Aave token and stake them, you are providing a deposit insurance to the to people who you know lend their money through Aave, and you're compensated for it, right? So and uh, also at the same time, people can stake on Ethereum, on Solana, and all these other chains. So basically, you are helping to share the cost of providing those public services in infrastructure, and share that cost of running these DeFi apps. So people have a incentive to keep using those products. It's like if you buy the stock of Amazon, you know, you naturally want to spend more time or want to purchase more stuff from Amazon rather than other shops that you don't have a financial relationship with, right? So the type of ownership, the participatory ownership model in DeFi just intensifies that kind of bondage, that kind of you know incentive alignment between the, the DeFi apps and the users who are using those DeFi apps. So I think these three are really the long-term competitive advantages of DeFi and they exist regardless of whether you have you know, regulatory restrictions. You can, you know, the, the, um, we can have the typical banking restrictions of capital requirement, liquidity requirement being imposed on DeFi, but these, Yes, th those restrictions are going to increase the cost of capital, right? Increase the cost of operation, but that's not going to take these advantages away. So, um, and the same thing with uh, the, some, some people argue that uh, some people criticize DeFi for being not decentralized despite the, you know, decentralized finance in its name. Well, guess what? The, long-term competitive advantages of the industry of DeFi as a whole does not really require decentralization, at least not the level that it's decent, that the typical uh, proponent, proponent of decentralization will advocate, will want to see. So I think these, this, these arguments are seriously being overblown um, against DeFi. Um, so I published this article and I got some interesting questions and I'm going to answer some of them in this video, okay? So first question from Nick Lobos, sorry, Nick Dobos. And he says, um, the advantages one and two, how are they different from the upside of other digital methods? For example, doesn't Amazon Web Services, AWS basically, offer both of these already? Couldn't you just set up banking using a digital hosting service like that? And a similar question from Lyft, he says, um, is the lack of regulation that enable DeFi's advantages, uh, 
is the lack of regulations that are enabling DeFi's advantages like being global rails. I would assume I would assume that banks would love to love to be global rails but can't because it's hard to grow globally due to all the different local regulations. So these questions are similar. Now, first of all, of course, of course you can use AWS to run DeFi and if AWS wants they can get into the business and actually they do because Nobody is stopping you from running a, you know, Ethereum mining or Bitcoin mining on, you know, uh, you can spin up a AWS instance and, and do that. It's not very profitable. If, if you do that today, it's probably not that profitable, but people actually do that. And actually, I can tell you, the funny thing is, one of my first encounters with this space was the crypto space was actually very negative because someone's actually hacked our my company account on AWS and used it for mining for for crypto mining and at the end of the month I got this huge bill from AWS that gave me a heart attack <laughs> you know and I was like what the heck is going on we 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 never use those instances so but AWS made good on this and refunded us whatever insane amount of money <laughs> was used to 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 mine crypto using our account but what i'm saying is there are indeed people who do that and there are layer one blockchains right now you know validator nodes are i think i just read some stats i forgot which chain that was but you know basically a sizable percentage of the validator nodes are indeed run on you know cloud services like aws However, does that slow down DeFi? No. <laughs> so uh, that that is that that is saying about these you know decentralization argument is that you already you are seeing very centralized DeFi already. AWS is not doing this directly, but guess what? We have centralized DeFi. We have centralized blockchain. It's called Binance Smart Chain. <laughs> And the DeFi services provided on Binance Smart Chain is actually insanely popular. So I don't understand how people can just not see reality, okay? Then, then of course, those people say, will tell you, oh, that, that is not going to be sustainable. They're going to be hacked or they're going to be regulated, whatever. I don't think they're right, <laughs> okay? I, I, I think you, you gotta, you gotta see reality and acknowledge reality and uh, discern the nature of reality. And the nature of reality is that what enables DeFi to go global is not decentralization, it's actually tokenization. Because you know, when, when you're running Ethereum blockchain, you're bypassing the traditional financing, financial rails, you're bypassing SWIFT, you're bypassing the, you know, payment transfer services using fiat and that, that is tr traditionally you know high cost and hard to access and heavily you know regulated obviously and as a bank if you want to you know do cross border payment you want to offer cross regional services you have to have correspondent banks with this other region that you want to uh, 
that you want to uh, expand into. So all these uh, traditional financial services using traditional financial rails have to deal with VR currency and that traditionally have a lot of problems. And DeFi bypass all of that by to using tokenization, essentially, right? Whether you, you can argue how decentralized or not Ethereum or Solana or Binance is, but the thing is they are not running on SWIFT. <laughs> So, so that is a huge advantage. It's you know a blank, a blank slate that you can build new infrastructure, a new global payment infrastructure upon. And I don't think that has much to do with decentralization, at least not to the extent that the decentralization maxis will want you to believe. Um, and also, you know, um, the other thing is you can argue um, AWS or any centralized traditional bank, they can spin up a totally centralized blockchain or they don't need to use a blockchain. Why use a blockchain? You can use it, you know, SQL, you can use the SQL database, which is even more low cost, right? So what's the difference here? is that I think the difference is tokenization. And also keep in mind, you know, even if those can be more efficient, history is path dependent. We are where we are today with the, you know, DeFi running on the public blockchains that are decentralized to various extent is because the whole thing started 10 years ago was, you know, was Bitcoin and then Ethereum and then it evolved into the space as we know it today with all the ecosystem, the infrastructure, the users and the ideologies behind it, whether you agree with those ideologies or not, that's where the users are, okay? That's where the attractions are. So even if today you want to build centralized DeFi running on SQL database, I don't know, you have to make it interoperable with the rest of the blockchain ecosystem <laughs> because that's where the users are. That's where the attractions are. So history is path dependent. It's not like there is no like um, benevolent central planner sitting in the cloud and figuring out, okay, this is the path that's uh, path of least res uh, resistance and highest efficiency that human race is going to lockdown. It doesn't work that way. And technology does not evolve that way, right? So if, 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 the, uh, if the prevailing technology is the most efficient one, then why companies like Cisco even exist today, which should have begun like years and years ago. <laughs> so, um, okay, question number two, this one from Dano. Uh, how, how, how do you think about business model defensibility in DeFi? How can protocols defend their margins? Because I, as I talked about in the article, one of the features of DeFi is the low cost of entry, right? This is the polar opposite of traditional banking. Traditional banks, it's very hard to get into. You have regulations, you have licensing uh, hoops that you have to jump through and you have very high fixed costs versus DeFi, 
you can spin up a DeFi app sitting in your bedroom coding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very low cost to get the thing set up and running. So, but the, the, the flip side of that is the cost of entry is very low. And that means the competition is very high. It's very hard to build any moat in this kind of industry compared to traditional banking, right? So then the question is, how do you build a moat? And I'm not going to, uh, I, I'm going to be very straightforward here. It's freaking hard. Um, and uh, I, I, I think, but, but I think there are, uh, it's the same thing as, as software service. It's the same thing as SaaS. Um, that, that's why SaaS is a very competitive space because anybody can build a CRM. Anybody can you know, clone a MailChimp or clone a, uh, I don't know, content management service. It's, it's very easy, right? So how do you build your moat? Um, I think two things, network effect, economy of scale, uh, those things are very hard to copy. Um, but to get to the network, network effect, you have to grow to a certain extent, right? So um, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, a comparison, if you compare Uniswap and SushiSwap, I definitely prefer the latter. I, 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 I love SushiSwap. I love their UX. I, you know, I, I, I love the horizontal expansion model that they have. Um, and arguably they are the more decentralized service, okay? But the thing is, when I go on SushiSwap, it's, it has less liquidity, it has less currency or token pairs. If I want to trade a token on SushiSwap, like I oftentimes I don't find it. So I have to go to, Uniswap, because that's where the users are. That's where the other users are. So Uniswap has a lot more liquidity, has a lot more users, has a lot more token pairs, and that is network effect is just going to build on itself. And so uh, what is already big is probably going to get bigger. That's the nature of network effect. So um, that's how I see some kind of moat can be built in this space. Um, but how, how do you get to that network effect is totally different question. And that is a very difficult question, right? And the other thing is obviously keep innovating and the, these apps, even though they're very low cost to run, it's still, you know, you have, you, you need to have people behind them to power the innovation, to keep innovating and to keep pushing out, pushing the boundaries and pushing out new products. And, and that's the, the thing about, you know, decentralized DAOs. Um, I have a question about those. It, it, the, the, my, my main question is who is going to be spearheading the innovation in these DAOs, because the traditional organizational structure is very top-down, right? You have an executive team, you have the visionary leaders, the executive teams, the 
handling different functions and you have people working you know under them uh you, we, we don't like that model. Nobody likes that model. That model can become very bureaucratic and uh, we don't want to be a cog in the machine, right? Nobody wants that. But you have to acknowledge that model comes to be what it is for good reasons. Because you, it, 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 has, its own, it has its own logic. That's how you, you typically, how you can run a, um, you can, how you can organize a larger group of people in a productive activity. Right, so very flat, very horizontal structure usually does not work very well beyond a certain scope. So um, who is going to be the visionary leader? Um, if, if, if everything is democratic in the DAOs and everything is voted by users, um, it's, you know, what Henry Ford, Ford would tell you, if I listen to people say, if, if I listen to what people want, they would say, they would tell me they want a faster horse. They won't tell me that, that they want a car, right? You need to have some people behind to actually spearhead, to actually be spearheading the innovation. That's not going to be automatically happening through a democratic process. So I can, I can, I can see Dow working really well for products that are already very mature that does not need further innovation. And we are so far away from that stage in industries like DeFi, NFTs, and blockchain in general. Okay, so that's that. Uh, next question from Brit Coin Boomer, and he says, I have 50% in BTC, I guess his holdings. Uh, I am Ethereum and DeFi skeptic. In what could I invest? Okay, so um, basically he's asking <laughs> which DeFi projects should he be investing in? I can tell you this, guys. Um, I'm personally not investing in any specific DeFi projects right now. I know you're sitting there thinking, what? You just wrote this whole long rant pumping DeFi and you're telling me you're not investing in any DeFi. <laughs> How does that make any sense? Um, well, here's the thing, guys. Like I said in the article, this, is, this industry is very tough. Competition is fierce. Innovation is fast, okay? And we are so early. So who the hell knows who the winner is gonna be? It's, it's, it's still a very early stage. Even the, even the guys, like, you know, we just mentioned that Uniswap, are they? They already achieved a certain network effect, a certain uh, certain scale. I don't know if they will be the final winners. Nobody knows. Uh, it, anybody who can give you a definite answer, I think they're dreaming. <laughs> so what I am like, this is this this is what works for me. Okay, this is obviously my own personal point of view. You take it or leave it. What I think is more sensible <laughs> for individual investors, unless you are industry VCs and you, you know, eat and drink this stuff for a living. For the average in investor, I think you're so much better off just invest in the layer one chains that DeFi's and NFT applications and other whatever use case 
applications will run on. That means Ethereum, Solana, Terra, Avalanche, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's a much better bet than individual DeFi projects. Uh, and also as an individual investor, I don't have time to look into all the, you know, to keep track of all those projects, DeFi projects like uh, a dime a dozen these days. Um, it's, it's, it's just very hard. And, but if you bet on the layer ones, you are bet on the, all the innovations that are happening on the, on the chains. The, again, the analogy is AWS. Do you bet on AWS or do you bet on the individual SaaS companies running on AWS? I am sure you, if you bet on the run, if you bet on the right SaaS companies, you will do extremely well. You can bet on the sales force of tomorrow. You can bet on the HubSpot of uh, Web3 or whatever Web2 SaaS company that's really big or MailChimp of uh, Web3. Um, you can do extremely well, but keep in mind, there are millions of SaaS companies that are doing just okay, okay? Uh, they're, they, 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 even the well-run companies are definitely not as big as AWS. So I think as a individual investor, you were probably better off in the web, web two age if you bet it on Amazon, AWS, instead of individual SaaS companies. So I think there is an analogy that can be extended here. Um, and in terms of uh, investing in layer ones. Um, I think some of you, you follow me on Twitter. I'm hugely bullish on Solana and Avalanche, okay? I know the, um, the critics would say those chains are not very decentralized or they're, they don't have the highest security standards, blah, blah, blah. You, 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 if, you, if, if you've listened so far, you know what I think about those, okay? Um, I, I, I think people are um, misweighting the importance of various factors. And to me, right now, the most important factor for a layer one chain is cost and speed. It needs to be cheap, it needs to be fast. Why? Because that's because we are at a stage of massive innovation happening on chain. The chain itself needs to be cheap and fast enough for people to actually innovate for people to actually you know, do experiments and, and invent new products on those chains. If you don't have a cheap and fast chain, you are, you are actually in, in, in the way of more innovation happening. And the you know, higher value added is going to come from more and faster innovation that is happening on your chain. It's not going to come. It's not going to come from, you know, more decentralization and higher security standard happening on your chain. Of course, you 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 those those two are important. You need to make sure there is a sufficient standard in that. But those are not the most most decisive factors for the success of layer ones. Okay, so that's my point of view. 
So I would bet on layer ones instead of individual DeFi apps, or again, as the individual investor, not a full-time DeFi investigator, you just, you know, diversify your portfolio across the top 10 or top 20 DeFi apps with equal weight. And uh, if one of them take off, you will do extremely well, well, the other 19 go to zero. <laughs> so um, that would be what I would do. Uh, question number, the next question from Future of Money. Uh, what is your thinking on how this cycle in crypto may go? Do we have a large drawdown across the board, perhaps, but perhaps not as deep as previous cycles? Okay. Um, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not particularly interested because predicting what's going to happen next year is so much more difficult than predicting what's going to happen next decade. And I know next decade, we're going to see explosive growth in blockchain space. Next year, what's going to happen? I, I have no idea. I know a lot of people is betting on the, this cycle going in a similar way in previous cycles. That means you're going to see huge explosion in Q4 of this year. Uh, and then the thing falls off a cliff. <laughs> so I know a lot of people are betting on uh, getting their money out, exit a market. Uh, like uh, end of this year or beginning of next year. Well, good luck doing that, okay? If you can pull that off, kudos to you. Um, just, just, just keep in mind, you know, is the observer always changes the observed. When so many observers are observed the thing and they all, they all want to do the same thing, um, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if, if it will go as what you expect it to go, okay? And there are a lot of people doing uh, either technical analysis or on-chain analysis that will tell you very confidently what's going to happen in the next few months, um, so on and so forth, okay? Um, they, those are very entertaining. Uh, they, they, they probably know a lot more. <laughs> than what I know about these cycles. But what I know is those people uh, before the huge dip in May and June, those people, like everybody was very, the on-chain analysts, everyone was very bullish. Oh, we have institutions coming. The technical indicators, uh, you know, showing we are in the middle of the bull market. And then the dip, the, the, the collapse or dip is the understatement, the collapse, the collapse in May happened. And then three weeks later, everybody turned so bearish. Okay. Everybody is in the story saying this is a bear market. So I don't know. I don't know who's a better analyst. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm too interested to find out. Uh, next question. Um, what's your opinion on tokenized real estate projects? So, um, in my DeFi article, I said um, a important stage for, for this sector, for the DeFi sector to further develop is that it's, it's going to have to integrate with real world assets. It needs to somehow move real world assets on chain and use those as collaterals in order to actually 
you know, uh, execute the financial intermediary functions like banking sector do, does. Okay, so um, tokenized, but but that's not a trivial problem. That's actually a hard problem. The same with tokenizing real estate is, it's not on chain. The real estate is off chain. So where does the trust come from? On chain, everything is programmed, right? So if I posted a hundred Bitcoin as collateral and I don't pay back the money, my collateral is going to be automatically taken away. No question about it. What happens off chain? Nobody knows. Okay. Um, so that's going to be a huge challenge. The on-chain trustless advantage no longer exists when, when, you, when you move to off-chain assets like that. I think a mitigating factor will be if we can move all those cash flows on-chain. So if you have a real estate project, okay, all the transactions, all the purchase of real estate um, need, to, need, need to be transacted on-chain and the, if you have a rental property or the rental payments need to be moved on chain, processed on chain, so that there is, uh, so that the programmability can come in. So if you have like tokenized the real estate, you say, I tokenize this project and token holders get the, a share of the cash flow from this project. And that can happen automatically when you're, uh, purchase transactions and your rental transactions are all happening on chain and that that can happen automatically right then you can manage your um manage your properties off chain still but financial transactions are all automatically happening on chain so that 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 will at least mitigate the trust issue but then there is still the legal issue right how do you work with existing ownership models now you traditionally you buy a house you have a deed and that deed is protected, that, that is the certificate of your ownership, protected by property law, right? Uh, NFT ownership, nobody knows what, there's no law about NFT ownership. So um, how do you square with the traditional real estate or real property ownership model? I don't know, I don't have the answer. That is the, that is the more difficult challenge and this kind of thing is not going to re be resolved just by super coder sitting in their bedroom coding madly, right? You actually need to interact with the real world. So maybe that's why this, this lack of innovation is happening slower because it requires somewhat different skill sets. but I think it will happen eventually. Um, okay. Um, finally, uh, okay, this is not related. Someone asked me about Axie Infinity <laughs> because I wrote an article about Axie Infinity a, a couple months ago. Uh, basically, my argument was saying, I'm not sure about Axie Infinity because it looks like the, 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 the activity is all driven by new users coming into the network. It's all, it's all driven by it. So, the, so, so how, how Axie works is you need you need to buy three axes to actually participate in the game. And you, once, once you start playing the game, you earn the love potion token, the smooth love potion token. And then you, those tokens are needed to actually breed new axes. And then you can sell new axes, right? So who do you sell the new axes to? You sell them to the new players. Because existing players, I, I already have my three axes. Why, why would I need new axes? 
unless I want to build a Axie army, <laughs> um, which does not apply to most players, right? So, so you need a, I'm not saying that does not happen uh, to existing players, but proportionally, you need a large chunk of new players coming into the system to actually sustain it, to actually sustain the demand for new axes. So that's the current economics of the Axie Infinity. Now you can say that is that sounds pretty Ponzi, and that's correct. You you <laughs> you need a new uh, you need a new user flow coming in, right? So that's 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 uh, that's what I said in 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 the article. But that's not it, okay? That 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 is not why I'm not I'm questioning Axie actually because. I, I don't, I, I actually don't have that much problem with Ponzi, just depends on how you use that money, okay? If you use the money <laughs> that you raise uh, to actually build a sustainable value generating network, value generating product, then we are good. Eventually the thing can stand on its two feet at some point, okay? So um, the, 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 whether the, the, the economic model today is Ponzi or not is less of a question. Um, you, because you can say, say the same thing about DeFi. A lot of it, the economic model is very Ponzi. Uh, you, you, you rely on all the new users buying your tokens to generate a high yield and blah, 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 right? So in that respect, it's similar. What's different here is why, why am I questioning Axie? Is because it's a game. And for a game to have value, it needs to be a good game, okay? Um, it's, it's, it cannot be just a bunch of people playing the game simply for the purpose of making money. Uh, because the, the, the game, it's value that comes from actually being fun to play, being a great game. And I can tell you, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody <laughs> who play the Axie game. I, I don't know anybody who, who's into gaming actually uh, play the Axie game for just for entertainment purpose. I, I, I know a lot of people playing Axie to make money in the Philippines. And that's disproportionately the, the, where the new user inflow comes from. And uh, of course the investors, the money flow comes from more advanced countries. But the users, the actual players, the larger chunk of it is not coming from advanced countries. Okay, so and I think that if you if you start a game with monetization as its base layer, uh, as the driving force, it actually creates very noisy signal for the for 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 the game itself to actually improve, because you never you, you don't get the correct market signal. Because people don't, users don't actually tell you how good your game is. What you see is users, new users, new new users coming in because they want the money. Okay, um, you you don't get the correct signals of how good a game is. So, um, so 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 that that's that's my main concern with Axie Infinity. It's not a, it's it's not because the economic model is Ponzi. It's because the product itself that's the difference because to me DeFi already has a product that is a hundred times better than traditional banking which is DeFi's competitor okay what it takes is real world integration 
for, for, for the thing to take off is actually a hundred times better than traditional games. I don't think so. I think it's the opposite. <laughs> so, but you know, uh, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a very interesting project, these play to earn projects uh, with so much money flowing in. I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of innovations happening. I'm just not sure in its current form. <laughs> It's something that I want to be invested in. And if, it, if, if I throw money into this, just personally, if I throw money into this, just because the price action and the current traction, I still don't have conviction for, for the reasons I just talked to you about. And if, if a market crash comes, I'll probably paper hand it and just sell it immediately. So that's not good because for in this kind of volatile market like crypto, you need a strong conviction to actually, you know, carry you through the high volatility, right? So if, if you don't have conviction, strong conviction in something, just don't touch it. There are plenty of opportunities around. So I, I could be totally wrong on Axie, but that's, that's how I currently view it. And it hasn't changed from two months ago. Come on, I wrote an article two months ago, okay? Yes, the world moves fast in crypto, but it's not so, it's not this fast, okay? You expect, my, you expect my view to change so fast from two months ago, just because XE Infinity went up like three X. I, no, come on. Okay guys, um, that's all for this. I hope you get something out of it. Uh, if you like this video, don't forget to subscribe to Tasha Labs YouTube channel, okay? Talk to you later, bye.